Good morning, comrade. Good morning, comrade.com. Twitch.tv slash good morning, comrade as well. Today, uh, we bring back the returning champion. Uh, you've been calling the show almost a half dozen times at this point. Uh, we have uh, Professor of Democracy Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Uh, we have Har- Professor Harvey K. How are you doing today? I'm okay. And just for the record, for the future, it's now Professor Emeritus. Emeritus. Yeah, you're right. That yeah. So I'll explain to everyone I had no intention of retiring ever. But last summer, facing the possibility of having to do lecture courses online, I thought, no, no, this isn't good. And fortunately, my retirement plan wasn't going to reduce my income, actually, because I also started Social Security. But the other, and the, the other thing is that I try, to do, I try to talk to people such as yourself as often as I can in order not to feel isolated. So, you know, if things are good. I'll, I missed the classroom this past year, but I wouldn't have been in the classroom, and that's why I... I stepped out. So mm-hmm. for those who don't know what it means, the uh, the word emeritus means, mer- I guess, meritorious or deserving of respect in spite of being retired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, man, that's that's cool. I mean, I really appreciate you coming on the show and I really appreciate, you know, watching, you know, you go around talking to all the people. I see you on No Miki show a lot. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's a really- kind of monthly thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, in fact, it's interesting because one of the re- one of the things that makes you so attractive, besides your remarkable beard and hair, is of course <laughs> is is of course you're 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 a Louisiana boy. Uh-huh. And in case people don't know, I did my I spent three years in Louisiana at LSU doing my PhD. And I even though I've never been back since '76, it's a long time. It is the case that I have a very special affection. I mean, the three years in Louisiana were were fantastic. And I tell everyone, the food. The music, I mean, you, you just couldn't beat Louisiana. And uh, Go Tigers. Yep, and go Tigers. And, we, and in fact, I, that's my, that is my college football team, and I, don't, oh, yeah. I never, miss, never miss a game on TV. So. Yeah, it's just uh, I was actually my first year uh, that I went to. I went to LSU for one year. Uh-huh. Um, and that was 2003 when LSU won the national championship, which was a wild year. <laughs> I, Let me tell I, you what. Uh, uh-huh. Wild beyond uh, what year was what year was that again? Remind me. Oh three. Oh three. Yeah. Well, I like years that end in three. I hope I'm not jinxing anything, but <laughs> but I do like years that end in three. I always found 13, 23, 33, 43, and so on and so forth, particularly fun years. Mm-hmm. In fact, I told people recently, my friend Joe Sandberg, you may run into him on Twitter. He's out in California and he's been pushing daily for a $23 an hour minimum wage. And I could nice. imagine, and he has political aspirations where he'll try to turn those kinds of numbers into reality for people. But it's, what's, what's interesting about it is we were having a conversation with another fellow, an active uh, left Democrat kind of guy, mm. and they were debating why 23, why not 25? And I said, well, I think 23 has a particularly good sound to it. <laughs> you know, it's just the three, just, it's yeah. just nice sound. 
Those, those, the, those, the threes are funny, and this is just going to be getting like kind of on one a little bit. But like the threes are funny because they can, they can hit almost every other number in like like if you count by threes, yes. you can basically hit everything, every every number in the in the in the thing. Wow. There it is every last digit. Yeah. Well, love potion number nine is of course three threes for what it's worth. <laughs> there <so>. you go. <laughs> this is this is an early morning show for me, so I'm a little. Uh, I'm actually pretty lively in the morning as opposed to late at night. So. Just, when you just had your coffee, right? <laughs> yeah. Right now, though, I, it looks like coffee right now, but it's actually water in here. So uh, nice. Yeah. Awesome. I, and I'll also confess to people, I'm a tea drinker. So oh, yeah. so I drink huge mugs of coffee in the morning. And then in the course of the afternoon, if I'm out, I allow myself a cappuccino. And if I'm at home, I'll get a sort of a cold, uh, an iced you know, latte kind of thing. So. Yeah. So um, I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about, uh, so you had a really great uh, conversation with uh, Nando and uh, Anna over at the Jackson oh, Show about yeah. um, a lot of uh, United States history. And we I've actually talked about this a little bit on the show as well, but like one of the things that we've kind of, you know, thought about and talked about was sort of the way specifically like, like leftists in America try to reject American history and and don't embrace and you've written a book on this uh, take yeah. over history uh, make America radical again um, how like there needs to be some kind of embrace of the positive components of like United States or, or at least you know the the radical elements uh, you bring up, up Thomas Paine FDR um, and Abraham Lincoln quite a bit you want to talk a little bit about that yeah well I'll start by saying that and th this is important when I was at when I was an undergraduate and then a graduate student. I was not an Americanist. I, I was studying Latin America. Mm -hmm. and, and I was particularly interested in landlord-peasant relations. I did my dissertation, which was a decidedly Marxian dissertation titled The Political Economy of Seniorialism, in which I argued that Latin America had developed a very unique, but though similar to feudalism in one sense, uh, set of social relations of production, out of which a whole series of class struggles and politics ensue. And I was in a lot of courses on development studies when I was at LSU, needless to say. And I'll never forget that one evening we were at a, in a seminar at the senior rural sociologist in the LSU department. Because, oh, by the way, so I did history, political science, and sociology in that order of degrees, though I am a historian if I have to identify with a singular thing. Well, um, and we were having this discussion about, in fact, it, that particular night we were talking about agriculture, needless to say, and we were talking about Peru or something to that effect. And I was talking about, and I get, you know, I was talking about landlord and peasant relations as if, uh, as if you could link all of these things to the sort of world capitalist system, okay? Mm. Which at one point I thought made a lot of sense. I have some reservations, I had serious reservations eventually, but my really good friend who was good 10 years older, maybe even more than that, and his interest was Louisiana coastal wetlands. And did, he did a lot of work promoting uh, wetlands protection and stuff. Well, he turned to me and said, if you think it all sort of emanates from some kind of North Atlantic capitalist order, don't you think you ought to be spending more time politically studying and addressing American politics? Mm -hmm. You know, 
I mean, that makes a lot of sense. The U.S. has always had, I mean, the Monroe Doctrine is a thing, right? And it's yeah, and it's yeah. it's basically we talked about this yesterday with uh, Austin Gonzalez from uh, he was actually on the delegation to Peru and to Venezuela recently from Democratic Socialists of America, and like basically the way that the U.S. has like historically interfered with. And basically treated the uh, entire of Central South America as their backyard, and and basically pushed you know whatever governments that they didn't think should have existed there out and and replace them with compliant ones. Yeah, well, and but I will just uh, I'll, well, let me just say now oh, that no, 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 that no, I, I understand what you're saying, but it really is the case that there are ruling classes in those nations oh, who would, who who literally would be no less worse. With or without the United States, okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the key thing to remember. But sure. that could take us to a whole long debate. But what I want to get to is that, so in the course of the, when I finished my PhD at LSU, and eventually I, I found myself talk about a segue. I shifted radically because of a whole series of events into um, looking at Marxist questions, into Marxist intellectuals in Europe. And I became absolutely enamored of the work of the British Marxist historians. Um, from the medievalist Rodney Hilton to the early modernist Christopher Hill to the great labor historian E.P. Thompson and the great world historian uh, Eric Hosbaum, and then eventually George Rude and others. And I became very much enmeshed in their universe, so I ended up becoming their historiographer. So I spent the 80s pretty much working on a, the first book I ever did, which will be out this fall again. After oh. It's never really been out of print, but I this time I just gave it over to zero books. It's gonna come out this fall again. Before that was with uh, cer with certain major British publishers, but I, anyhow, I'm mm -hmm. going off on a tangent. Let me go back. <laughs> so uh, so the 80s were my, was my British decade and I really, really was heavily and strongly influenced by their understanding of class struggle and the making of history. So while I was going back and forth to Britain and I will say that my wife is British, uh, well, originally British, she's, an American citizen now after all these years. I won't hold that against her. <laughs> well, we did root for England the other day in the uh, European <laughs> Cup. <laughs> big time, the whole family, it's a big thing. So I will, I will hold that against you. Uh, well. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, there are so many directions we can now go away from the subject. Yeah. So, but anyhow, in the 80s, I was really fascinated by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and how they seem to be given their separate accents and particular stories, they really were both promoting a conception of, of a very conservative conception of British and American history respectively. And they were doing it in a way which was actually brilliant, okay? Brilliant and dangerous and essentially almost effaced from the record the kinds of class struggles that had made both Britain and the United States or turned them into sort of, you know, in their respective ways in the States, a democratic republic in Britain, you know, a constitutional monarchy and then a democratic uh, a, a political order. But anyhow, so in the 80s, I was really going back and forth and something occurred. Oh, yeah, I started writing about them as well, about their use and abuse of history. And the more I looked into that, the more I became fascinated. It's a very long story, but I'll say that the more I became fascinated by the American story that Reagan was so eager to suppress. Mm -hmm. And along the way, he was literally appropriating part of our story 
the meaning the, the more pro progressive, indeed radical story of the United of American history, mm -hmm. especially. And this is what really sort of pushed me up against a wall, and I knew I had to do something. My hero ever since I was a child, Thomas Paine. Mm -hmm. So I really started to dig into the American story. And a friend of mine down in Madison, well, he was then in Providence, Rhode Island. He and his wife were on the faculty at Brown, Paul Buell and Mary Jo Buell, two great radical historians. Mm -hmm. um, Paul suggested to me something like, uh, hey, you know, if you're really that interested in doing this kind of stuff, maybe we should put together a volume, which we'll call it the American Radical. And in fact, um, well, I don't, have a, I don't have the picture of it here, but it's a beautiful cover. Um, it's at 47 biographical portraits, and I don't mean painted portraits. I mean literary portraits of American radicals from Pontiac and Neolin, the Native American leaders, and Thomas Paine, all the way through to Michael Harrington and others of Michael Harrington of DSA importance, you might mm -hmm. say. And one of the what, the only rule we had when, as we were selecting is the person had to be have passed away. They could not be alive to be in the volume in part because we knew damn well there were those people who became, who went from being truly on the left to being utter reactionaries. Mm -hmm. Probably the foremost figure in the contemporary world, and he's still alive, is this David Horowitz. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Who, you know that name. Back in the, I don't know if you know, back in the late 60s into the early 70s, he was a Marxist. And he had moved to London to be close to his hero, Isaac Deutscher, the great um, uh, Marxist biographer of Trotsky, um, among other things. So... Um, what I was saying is, so somehow I, I just became fascinated. I ended up writing a short piece for the, this American Radical volume on Thomas Paine. And it was like, no going back. And one of the things that struck, so I really, during the, uh, during the 90s, threw myself into the American Radical story. And I became fascinated by it. And one of the things that I'll say, which sounds very chauvinistic. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Very chauvinistic. That's a painting by Ralph Fasanella, a great sort of, Brooklyn left, at one time I assume communist, but at least a socialist artist. And uh, so, okay, so I was saying, so, so in the 90s I really got into this. And one of the things that struck me is how utterly, I mean, truly rich and persistent and diverse and visionary the American radical tradition was. And the most striking thing about it was that every generation of American radicals seemed to reach back in the American story to the revolution for all of the failings of the revolution in terms of slavery and the status of women, whatever we might want to say, they found within it an incredible promise first articulated by Thomas Paine and then inscribed in the American story in some ways by the declaration, equality, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I became really enamored in some ways of the, of the radical tradition and the more I thought about it as years went by and started writing about it, I wrote a book about you know Thomas Paine, Thomas Paine, The Promise of America. I wrote a young adult biography of Paine first. And I also became fascinated by how the American radical tradition really was a tradition. And you know that, that and by the way, and Paul Buell in part taught me this, the degree to which every one of these American radicals we had included in the volume sort of looked back and had, had something in the American story to lay claim to. And also, and this was really fundamental, and I try to make this case. It's not just that the American radical story is so fascinating and persistent. It's also that these radicals really did understand that they were speaking to their fellow Americans, not, not to teach, not, well, in part, to, to enable them 
to think in ways they may not actually have been thinking, but to enable them to understand why they felt as they did. Why was it they may not have used the terms that exploitation and oppression mattered to them? And what it is, and I've come to this conclusion that there is the, that the American radical tradition and selected major figures in American history, and I think Lincoln and Roosevelt exemplify them as presidents, really did sustain a, a kind of radical or at least a democratic imperative in American life. And I think there is a democratic impulse that runs through American experience. And I think Americans feel it. And in fact, the perver we, we witness the perversion of it regularly as we see when reactionaries go, you know, do everything they can to sort of, you know, sort of rouse certain sections of what, you know, folks would have called the masses by turning them against other you know, other folks who should be their allies in favor of pursuing life, liberty, and happiness. Yeah. So, yeah, so I have this sense about American history, which which I did not find shared. I haven't found it shared. You know, liberals, you know, say, oh, yeah, you know, but they don't they don't talk about it. OK, Conservative they, they, they'll, they'll pay lip service, but they won't engage with the context. Right. And nor will they cite the radicals of the radical tradition. Mm -hmm. They and, and they, they literally will practice a kind of suppression of memory as much as the conservatives do. They'll do it. Just use a different tone of voice. So <laughs> and, 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 and bigger words <laughs> and bigger words. <laughs> well, in fact, they often defer. Well, in fact, one of the things that strikes me, and I've wrote about this a number of times, the book Take Hold of Our History that I refer to, and that's over my sh over yeah. that shoulder. Um, my point is that conservatives fear the past. They they claim that they are concerned to sustain it, though not the current cohort of of, of conservatives. They, mm -hmm. By the way. There are no conservatives today. They are reactionaries, pure and simple reactionaries. And they range from the white nationalist type to the more clearly fascist type mm -hmm. to the just those who literally would like to uh, not lose their wealth and power. I mean, it's just that kind of stuff. But OK, so we know what they're about. And by the way, they're more willing to try to appropriate our story especially at this moment in time, because they like to think that they like to think that the right wingers are the real American radicals. And by the way, liberals fall into the trap of calling them radicals when instead of calling them what they are reactionary. reactionary. So, you know, so and then you look at the at liberals and when's the last time a liberal really did other than maybe a nod to FDR, which and usually they nod to FDR in a way that's not actually fair to FDR. Because, I mean, FDR himself fully appreciated the degree to which his New Deal depended on not simply encouraging working people but, and, and recruiting them to the New Deal labors, but also empowering them, even if he may not have gone as far as we might have liked. Mm -hmm. and, and that working people were pushing him and enabling him to pursue a New Deal that on his own and just with the Dems, he could never have accomplished. Mm -hmm. So anyhow. So I've got this this thing about American the American story that I don't think liberals run from, conservatives try to suppress, and I think the left, to our failing for all too long, we've just turned our back on it, and we you know I don't deny the imperative of internationalism, but of course. but if, if you know there's that quote that I think they put up on the screen, Kale Brooks, the producer for Jacobin, put up on the screen from Michael Harrington, that he only really came to, to love America when he became a socialist. Mm -hmm. And I and I, I could I have it here somewhere. I'd love to read it if you, if I could find it. Can I read it if I find it? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I think I stuck it on my phone for easy access. I'll I'll call <laughs> it up. 
Yeah, let's see here. Here, this is Michael Harrington back in 1973 in the book Fragments of, a, of the Century. It was as a socialist, and because I was a socialist, that I fell in love with America. In saying that, I'm not indulging in romantic nostalgia about youthful days on the road, but rather underlining a crucial political truth. If the left wants to change this country because it hates it, then the people will never listen to the left, and the people will be right. To be a socialist, to be a Marxist, is to make an act of faith, of love even, toward this land. It is to sense the seed beneath the snow, to see beneath the veneer of corruption and meanness and the commercialization of human relationships, men and women capable of controlling their own destinies. To be a radical is in the best and only decent sense of the word patriotic. Mm -hmm. And I just, that, that really does, amongst other lines that I could probably discover in, in other folks I admired, and I met Harrington back in the early 80s, I guess it was, mid 80s. Um, I forget the exact year he passed away. But it is the case that that was the sense that I had as I moved from being a, you know, sort of left liberal as a, as a, as a teenager to becoming a socialist. And, uh, and, and I'll also say the British Marxist historians taught me that as well. They had a, they had a similar kind of understanding and affection of, of England, if not Britain overall. So, uh, I agree with this comment from uh, Ellie. To your point, uh, she thinks it's awful that uh, there's a de awful decoupling of American radical tradition in history and causes us to all feel somewhat displaced and without a compass, like basically rudderless. Like like the fact that that many people on the left in America don't um, don't or at least they, they'll engage with uh, United States history in a very negative way, uh, only negatively, um, sort of makes you almost like reactive to, to, to like, I don't know. There's no affirmative building. You're essentially starting from scratch, it feels like, on everything, if that's, like, if that's the perspective you're taking. Yeah, well, I think so. And then yeah, the other thing, too, is that when – I'm not a fan of the 1619 Project, you know, the mm -hmm. 1619 Project, because I think they actually leave out – I think they leave out some of the – no one's going to – I mean, you'd have to be a literal – piece of you-know-what to fail to understand the degree to which slavery shaped American history, mm. okay? And you really, and but uh, look, exploitation and oppression, that's, that's why we're, that's why we on the left are in this to understand things intellectually because we know, you know, intellectual labors really ought to be democracy enhancing right. and to avoid or to ignore the story of exploitation and oppression of, of tragedy. I mean, it's there, and and my generation has done a damn good job, I think, over these last. Well, I'm not. I wasn't necessarily an Americanist in those years, but at least 50, past fifty years of work in history, for for the most part, has been really remarkable in changing people's notions about what Amer the American story is. But the notions that we've now developed, the ideas we've now developed, have yet to be articulated in an effective way in a kind of more narrative, grander sense. And everyone always thinks if you go, if you go to if you go to pursue a narrative, you're somehow going to efface, as the conservatives do. You know, like Ronald Reagan would talk about, you know, the founders were being divinely inspired, right? Mm -hmm. Divinely inspired. When, you know, I mean, if they were divinely inspired, then God left out black folk. Right. Yeah, yeah. God, God, did God divinely inspire slavery as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and and according to 
According to many a Baptist minister, probably yes. Okay. (laughs) But not all Baptist ministers. Let me make that clear. Okay. um, religious traditions about, are religious traditions are just as uh, as varied as as many of the historical you know traditions and things like that as yeah. well. There's 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 ones that are promote you know positive egalitarian values, and there's ones that promote right. That's right. Um, yeah, you know the opposite. <laughs> yeah, and I, and in fact, I want to step up the narrative question a little bit. I'll just there's something else I want to offer besides the American story of. Radical generations. Okay. And I'll just point out in case anyone wants to know my, about my Thomas Paine before I get into what I was going to say is one of the things, one of the reasons I wrote the, the book Thomas Paine and the Promise of America that came out in 2005 is that I, I really wanted to show that how in every generation conservatives suppress Thomas Paine's memory when, you know, they, you know, they crapped on his memory. They wrote him out of the story. They never acknowledged him with a, any kind of real place in the American textbooks. There were no, there were, the only monument that ever came to exist of pain back in the, in the 19th century was when working people contributed like dimes and nickels and stuff to put up a little statue in New Rochelle mm-hmm. where he lived in, in New York State. But okay, but here's the thing. When I went out to write that book about pain, the suppression of pain's memory, it turned... I found out I was wrong, that we were all wrong about the story, that in every single generation, and I'll just lay them out if in case people are interested, Payne passed away in 2009, sorry, <laughs> 1809. Yeah. And, and long life, that one. <laughs> right. And, and the story was, as most people told it, his biographers, was that his memory was effectively suppressed. But in fact, and I'm not exaggerating, people should pick up Thomas Paine and the Promise of America if they can. Free thinkers, religious free thinkers, the working men's parties, the abolitionists, the trade unionists, okay, the populists, the progressives, the socialists. I'm going all the way through American story because this is the case. Um, The communists in the 30s alongside of other progressive groups, they all reached back and laid claim to Thomas Paine. And and his, and in fact, his work was never out of print in the United States. And all of these groups, right? I mean, they literally cel- many of them celebrated his birthday every year on January, in January 30th. Um, sorry, January 29th. FDR's birthday is January 30th. Mm-hmm. January 29th. And, and here, and in fact, German immigrants to this country, one of the reasons they were, they were so eager to come to the United States after the Revolution of 1848 that essentially failed, is that they had been influenced by Thomas Paine's writings in Europe, and they believed that this would be the place they could create the democratic political and social order. So down in Texas, in the hill country of Texas, there were communities that really were every year celebrating Thomas Paine's memory. Um, and then here in Wisconsin, the German-American state, both there were rural free thought churches as well as working men's groups that from the 1850s all the way through to about 1920, never missed a chance to celebrate his birthday. And, so, and there's at least one rural church out in, in central Wisconsin that still does. So my point isn't just about Thomas Paine. My point is that these generations of radicals understood the story. Now, here's what, the thing I want to get to, is that it isn't just the story of all these generations. It's also something else that I discovered in the work on Paine, and then especially my work on Franklin Roosevelt, 
And so I had the revolution and the, and the New Deal era in my mind is that I kept thinking to myself, well, how is it that we don't really talk about certain moments in American history as we should? Some now are doing that regarding the Civil War once again. We've seen in, in some ways sort of these revolutionary moments in the American story. In other words, well, let me put it this way. When, when the idea of America and the possibility of an American nation, republic, has been in jeopardy, I mean, in the sense of literally on the verge of destruction for either internal reasons or foreign threats. Americans somehow found it in themselves, and I don't even know if they ever did it fully consciously, but led by you know significant figures. And I'm, I'm going to say George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt, and many another figure in those years, they found it in themselves to rally around the idea of going radical. So, I mean, the creation of the American Republic was an utterly revolutionary, revolutionary act. No royalty, no aristocracy. Look, we know of what failed to be done, but it was the case that the revolution was made in many ways, not simply by a few guys who sat around to write up a declaration and later constitution, but also by the pressures of working people of farmers and artisans and laborers and yes, slaves demanding radical action inspired by the way, by Thomas Paine's common sense and his other writings during the revolution. So that in many ways you have this radical revolutionary founding that left too much undone, tragically speaking. Okay. And then think about when we talk about the civil war and Matt Carp at Princeton and also of Jacobin has a great video. If anybody's interested, go to the Gravel Institute and watch his discussion of what the civil war really was about. This sort of left revolution made by, well, by slaves and by working people from the North involved in the, in overthrowing the slave regime. But here's the thing, Lincoln himself, look, I mean, you can debate the degree to which he was or was not a racialist in his thinking, but he hated slavery. He acknowledged the equality of, huma of, of humanity, uh, contrary to most people's understandings. And he was determined, if ever given the opportunity as president, to end slavery. And I could tell that story. I don't have to do it right now, but it indeed, it happened. Now, what Americans literally rose to the, uh, in spite of whatever they, they carried around in their heads, the fact is they didn't only save the union, they saved the union by radically changing America, the end of slavery. You know, there was, of course, there were the later, later Bourbon regimes that we, we know about Jim Crow and all of that, but slavery was brought to an end by Northern working men who came South to fight the Civil War and slaves themselves who made it their po point of getting to Union lines and in, sen in a sense self-enlisting in the Union ranks. I think about a quarter of a million people of color, men of color served in the ranks and we won the Civil War in good part because of that kind of, if you like, interracial unity to overthrow the slave regime. And then in the 1930s, in the deepest you know, moments of the Depression, what FDR realized is that you needed, he actually said it, we needed radical change. And he didn't simply get the Congress, which was Democratic, to, though, by the way, that included a hell of a lot of Southern Democrats, 
They legislated a new deal. They created massive change in, in Americans' landscape in terms of infrastructure, in terms of fighting soil erosion. I mean, a whole vast array of radical transformations in the American landscape. They brought, literally brought electric power to Southern farmers because the corporate uh, utility companies didn't think it would make enough money by going, by offering family farms an opportunity to have electricity to light the barns and light their homes. But more importantly is that given the, the, the strength of the Democrats, in fact, left Democrats, and also the determination of labor, they empowered labor. By the way, they didn't only create the National Labor Relations Act in 36. From the very beginning, FDR signed into law the National Industrial Recovery Act, which empowered workers with the right to organize and bargain collectively. Mm -hmm. So I think of the 30s as, in many ways, a revolution in government. And it's absolutely groundbreaking, like that kind of a uh, like like actually having laws that protect workers, yeah, uh, and and, and affirmatively acknowledge their right to organize, like in the context of a period where you have literal battles between striking workers and basically either uh, you know private armies or police, you know, and yeah. and, and literally fighting it out with guns. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, people don't realize what went on in places like in Minneapolis, as a matter of fact, and down south and out in San Francisco. I mean, there were, you know, some ways what we would have called general strikes in some of these locations as they were after FDR's death in 1946. But so anyhow, so there are these three moments of the 1770s, the 1860s and the 1930s. And that includes the, the war period and Americans determination to defeat fascism. Um, unfortunately, they they didn't defeat fascism at home and overthrow the Jim Crow regime uh, until the 1960s by way of the civil rights movement. But I, what I'm getting at is that there is in this American story not only a radical tradition, and someone could too readily say, well, you know, weren't most of these, as Howard Zinn too readily claims, bless you, as Howard Zinn readily claims, that they were all somehow defeated. And Howard Zinn's book becomes a story of defeats, which is one of the reasons I don't, I'm not a, huge fan of people's history. Mm. But more importantly, if you look closely, is that even those movements themselves in defeat made a significant impact, not just on the sure. tradition, but on the story. And then you get these revolutionary moments of the 1770s, the 1860s, the 1930s. And I just think, I, I think, how could we not be fascinated? How could we not want to tell that story? But of course, many a school board around the country dominated by conservatives are you know, pretty hostile to the story that I've just related and that you and I are, are not yeah. in agreement on. Exactly. Um, sort of to that point, uh, Ellie had another question in uh, chat. She wanted to know um, uh, if, you, if you're curious about what um, books most Americans should read or that, that, that you feel is underread, uh, historically speaking. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's, a really, that's a really good question. Um, well, I think my books are underread, of course, but of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you want, it, it's funny enough. It, I think there are certain historians that that you should look for. So I think Eric Foner, oh, who great. retired recently from Columbia University, is just a great American historian. He really wrote a great book on Thomas Paine and the American Revolution. Right, has written really great stuff on the radical Republicans. And then even more significantly on Recon his book on Reconstruction, mm -hmm. which scares off too many people because it's big, is, it's is just a fantastic work. 
Fant- I've never read the whole thing all the way through. I, it's the kind of book I go in and out of usually. Mm-hmm. So I think, phone- but I'll also say that, and this is going to sound a bit, you know, left patriotic. I think a good place to start sometimes is with the original radicals themselves. Mm-hmm. So for example, I would recommend people pick up Thomas Paine's Common Sense. You know, it's a which is short, not a long read. No, I, you know, I mean, I, I've got innumerable copies. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and look at the thin, you know, Thomas Paine Common Sense. Then mm-hmm. I did this thing for uh, pre- Skyhorse Books in New York Common Sense nice. Thomas Paine. Um, I mean, there's innumerable copies of those are available. You can go right online and print it out. There, it's available f- free in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, also, another good thing to read would be the cri- the first of the crisis papers and i'm sure everyone knows the, the words these are the times that try men's souls it's just a revolutionary opening to that line you know to that, that to that pamphlet and so things like that i think are just great and by the way i mean i i sometimes leave it out and i shouldn't thomas paine is also the godfather of social democracy so in in his last great pamphlet again a short thing which you can readily find online or in in print agrarian justice and i think people might not bother to pick it up because they don't want to read about agriculture well it's not about agriculture what it is is it's about you know the monopoly of land ownership by the rich and he says those folks owe everyone else a payment a tax because god meant the earth to be shared by all and if some people monopolize the land then they owe the rest of us a payment and those payments should be accumulated in a national treasury or a community treasury and the monies that go in there should then be used to give every young person and he was something of a feminist man young man or woman or boy or girl an opening a payment to start out when they reach maturity so that they can get education set up a small business buy land of their own in other words fight poverty by empowering people from the outset and then the other thing, the other thing is that it also would serve as the foundations for social security. And this is why mm-hmm. it's so important to document agrarian justice. He actually says in there, people at the age of, of, of seniority, I guess, you know, 55, 60, whatever the years selected by the community should not have to work. And they should receive payments from this treasury in order to make their later years, you know, more pleasurable and comfortable. Mm-hmm. So here's Thomas Paine in 1790s mm-hmm. calling for what we eventually instituted during the 1930s, Social Security. Yeah, it only and took about way, 160 yeah. years or so. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and of course, it's, been under, it's regularly under siege. And fortunately, Americans believe in it enough that they've basically chastised and even punished anyone who suggested privatizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, okay. So uh, Thomas Paine's common sense, I think in, uh, other documents would include Frederick Douglass's speech. Mm-hmm. What to the slave is the 4th of July. Now, if you read most of it, you'll think that it's just one long rightly deserved diatribe against Americans and, and, and the Republic for permitting and, and allowing slavery in a country which made so much of the idea of liberty and freedom and, and democracy. But but Douglas is not only castigating Americans, sort of, it, but at the end of the speech, he then says he still has hope. Mm-hmm. He thinks the promise inscribed in American life in the Declaration most of, and the Bill of Rights and so on is so strong 
that America can be redeemed if Americans really want to do so. And so it's not just hopeful, it's a kind of patriotic call for radical action against, you know, against slavery. He gave the, uh, the lecture, the speech in, I think it's 1852, on July 5th, the day after July 4th. Um, other things to read would be, of course, the Declaration of, of Sentiments, the 1848, the women's right, the, you know, the, the gathering at Seneca Falls, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the feminists of the day, and by the way, attended also by Frederick Douglass, um, up in Seneca Falls, New York, up in the northwest corner of New York. It's, it's a great statement, and what they do is they take hold of the Declaration of Independence and essentially rewrite it as in a feminist fashion. And by the way, I think if you read it today, it's still, it's still all the, the great statements by the radicals of the past, they still resonate. Mm -hmm. You can almost hear their voices within you, encouraging you to think more carefully about the world and to act upon it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Eugene Debs' speeches are wonderful. The great socialist Eugene Debs. Oh, Debs is great. Yeah, the speech, one, I mean, I, there are lots of great ones. One of them that I really, really like is when he's been arrested and he's been on trial for sedition during civil during the uh, first world war because he spoke out against you know capitalism and the war um they arrested him and put him on trial there was the espionage and sedition acts i believe they were of 1917-18 under wilson and in one of the two cases one of the two tr uh, moments not the original trial i believe but on his statement to the jury before he's sentenced. He actually stands before the jury and gives a long speech in which he calls into the courtroom. This is one of those moments that validates everything I do, by the way. Mm -hmm. He actually calls into the courtroom to stand alongside him, the great radicals and progressive figures of the, of the American 19th century. He calls Thomas Paine, Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, who dissented on the war with Mexico, Thomas Paine, the great revolution. He calls him into the room and basically in our, we can almost see them in our minds uh, as they're lining up alongside him to say, you know, America is about dissent and challenging the powers that be and making a more democratic nation. So, you know, that kind of thing. Also, FDR speeches, which I, if I don't mind saying, I put together a volume last year. I published this book, FDR and Democracy, mm -hmm. um, which has... Not only the speeches we learn in school, like, you know, the, I, I actually, I did include it, the Pearl Harbor Day speech kind of thing, you know, the day after Pearl Harbor. I, that's not even the speech I would urge people to read. Rather, I would ask them to read, especially a speech he gave in 1932 when he was first running for president, gave this speech out in San Francisco. And in there, he actually first calls for an economic declaration of rights, a modernization of the original Declaration of Independence. And then in 1936, when he's nominated for re-election and he's in Philadelphia, he gives one, he gives possibly the most radical speech ever delivered by an American president. In there, he basically says, he, he talks about how the capitalist rich, the corporate powers that be, are claiming that the, you know, that the FDR New Dealers and Democrats and working people want to overthrow American values and institutions. And he says. And, he, and basically what he says is they're not completely wrong, it's, but we don't want to overthrow American values and institutions. We want to overthrow their power. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he says this right in a speech and it's, that's heard across the country.
What pre- when have you heard the president, president of the United States like like literally anti-capitalist rhetoric coming yeah. from the president of the United States? Right. Imagine right. Joe Biden saying something like that. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Imagine, <laughs> imagine anybody who's president saying that. So that, uh, okay, and then and then the great speech of 1941, January 41, the the speech comes to be known as the speech for the four freedoms: freedom of of um, speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear, which was another book I did, The Fight for the Four Freedoms. Mm-hmm. And then his speech in 1944, where he returns to the idea that he laid out in 32 and actually offers a call for Americans to, to enact. He says, look, we've gotten to the point in our, in our lives, in our history, where we recognize that needy people are not free people. And it's time for us to write a new Bill of Rights, and a second Bill of Rights, an economic Bill of Rights, okay, which, again, it's just a magnificent speech. So mm-hmm. read those kind of things, and you, you can't help but feel like something was lost in the American political uh, political life since then. But then if you come to the 1960s, we, you know, there's some really good stuff. I mean, I, I think that if you read, if you go to the July no, sorry, August, was it July or August? The March on Washington, August, right, of 63. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone knows the speech by Martin Luther King Jr., which was magnificent. But people should also look at the speech that A. Philip Randolph gave that day or, or the remarks of other figures that day. Randolph is a, a, a incredible figure, by the way, who is completely glossed over in a lot of like mainstream histories and, and, and the way things are taught in school. I didn't mean to interrupt, but go ahead. No, no, well, let's stick to Randolph. I mean, a lot of people don't even know about this. This is an incredible document. Yeah, the freedom budget. Yep. This is, so, and notice to to achieve freedom from freedom from want. Exact same rhetoric. So this is there. It is that connection between these American radicals and progressives. And here's here's Randolph, who, by the way, was a major major labor figure in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s into the 60s, an active civil a major civil rights figure. And and he and Roosevelt had a, had a very special relationship that involved a confrontation in the Oval Office where he got Roosevelt to sign an executive order to end discrimination in the defense industries, which didn't fully end the discrimination, but it opened up the defense later war industries to African-Americans that previously had been excluded um, and so on and so forth. Well, that's the thing I just showed. The freedom budget was put together in 1965, inspired in part by the great society efforts of Lyndon Johnson, but no less by Franklin Roosevelt's projection of four freedoms and an economic bill of rights back in 41 and 44. And it's a call to spend, the sum will seem small, but remember this is 1965, I think it was $10 billion to utter, to utterly, you know, to completely bring an end to poverty by rebuilding cities and 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 the countryside, and assuring everyone a job, and by the way, 150 major figures, university heads, labor leaders, foundation leaders signed on to this call, and the tragedy is, of course, that Johnson basically shifted his attention from the Great Society or on poverty to the war in Vietnam and the war in Southeast Asia and money's just, you know, went from one to the other. And by the way, in 66, the white house was, was going to, and I think carried through in part 
honor Randolph at the White House with a major conference on civil and economic rights. Mm -hmm. And I've got the actual volume for the conference somewhere here. But the point is that, you know, this is this is suppressed. So what do we remember from the civil rights movement? Well, we do remember, you know, civil rights and voting rights, which are radical changes in southern southern politics. But we don't remember the fact that the March on Washington was a march on Washington for jobs and freedom. And that Martin Luther King Jr. himself cost him his life. His The struggle in the late 60s had to do with poor people's and working people's battles. And he was in Memphis in support of the sanitation workers' strike. Yeah, yeah. Like, like literally organizing... Yeah, garbage collectors and 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 people that process like that 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 is that's when they that's when he got whacked right he got whacked because he was yeah. not not because he was like like well it was because he was a threat to the established you know economic and political he order. saw the intimate connection between civil rights and labor struggles exactly. in fact if you look at there's a whole volume of 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 edited by Michael Honey I believe is his name that shows the intimate connection in, in King's mind between the advance of workers' rights and the advance of civil rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so they're, they're, they're fundamentally linked because, I mean, like, we, this is one of those things that comes up so much in, this com in, like, in conversations, specifically on the left, um, about, like, oh, we're, we're going to talk about identity or, or, you know, racism, sexism, and all the other isms versus, oh, we're going to talk about, you know, class and economic sort of, sort of situations. And, 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 and considering, like, like that, that whole frame is just so off to me because, like, those things are not in conflict with one another. They're in confluence. And, and, and the, the, a lot of the identity things are weaponized and utilized by the ruling class to divide the working class. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Very effectively, to be, yeah. to, to be honest. Yeah, by the way, I want to point out that, that in, the, in the 1860s, of course, we witnessed a, a constitutional revolution by way of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But also, even though there was no amendment that came, came forth in the 1930s, there was a constitutional revolution of sorts then because everyone remembers that the Bill of Rights was put into place to, to, you know, to protect citizens and residents against the powers of an overbearing government. But in the 1930s, Roosevelt and the New Dealers essentially redefined the meaning of the Bill of Rights by saying that government could, could act in defense of people's rights against corporations mm -hmm. and against you know, movements like the Klan and, and other groups. So what I'm getting at is that you know, in the 60s, we saw we saw something of a constitutional revolution by the way of the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act, but because they didn't take the form, uh, perhaps of, of a specifically maybe a civil rights amendment, am I forgetting? I don't, uh, you know, it, we, we've now seen this onslaught against voting rights, civil rights, which has directly also involved these last 45 years, nothing less than a class war against labor, which yes. is why the inequality is what it is in America, which is why workers have seen states become in quotes, right to work states and so on. So yeah, right to work for less. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 almost like a uh, well, it's like a it well, it's an unraveling of that you know of that of those gains that were yes. Established oh God, yeah. No, it, no. I mean, I'm old enough to tell you that the last 45 years, it's been just a steady onslaught by the corporate rich conservatives and neoliberal Democrats. Yeah. 
against uh, they, they work hand in hand. Yeah, they're one hundred percent. They're 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 one. You know, they're one class that that is wielding its power. And right now, you know, the working class is not particularly organized to to combat yeah. that. Uh, and and that's sort of what we. Uh, that's that's the mission, right? That's what we got to right. do. Now, I know. I know we're coming to a close soon, but so I just want to say that we're everybody's focused on mansion in terms of le democratic legislation. But I got to tell you, I'm focusing also on the likes of Chris Coons of of Delaware. He, he's like the, the premier neoliberal in the, you know, and what's striking to me is you would think that Joe Biden, who literally mentored the guy, OK, should should be able to mentor him just as Joe Biden is now claiming to have transcended the neoliberals mm -hmm. that he that neoliberalism of his, his own Senate career. That he ought to be able to call these guys in and actually smack them around and say, "Look, you get in line, or, or you're never, or we're going to be smacked around by the Republicans even worse than Trump did it to us." Right, but quite the opposite. He's Joe Biden, and because if you remember, uh, remember when Kirsten Sinema got like all of that thing for the thumbs down on the fifteen oh, minimum wage. Yeah. Um, what people don't remember is that. Chris Coons and the other senator from Delaware, right, from, along right. with Manchin, all voted against uh, right. against putting the fifteen dollar minimum wage on the uh, on that um, on that bill. So oh yeah, I, I'm really glad you pointed that because I was thinking of that, but I I failed to point out the real proof was that yeah. how do you possibly vote against a fifteen dollar minimum wage? Where, what what morality are you subscribing to that would lead you to do that? Well, only one, and that is the corporate largesse that keeps you in, keeps you in your office. Yeah. And everything that sort of um, tries to explain it away is just a post hoc justification yeah. and like damage control, essentially. <laughs> right. So anyhow, I, we're, I should probably say it's good to see you. <laughs> Great to talk to you as always, uh, Professor K. Um, anything you want to say on the way out? Um, I wish everybody a really re good rest of the summer, I guess. Yeah, it's been. And do people know you're up in the mountains right now? Yeah, they know I'm. Um, I'm up in the mountains. I didn't explain though, just the uh, the specifics of of what we're like. What happened yesterday? I didn't talk about the uh, the disc golf situation. I went and played disc golf for the first time. Ah, uh, yes. And yeah. uh, my, my my brother Dean brought me along, and uh, I, I feel I kind of feel like I've been had. Um, because I think he tricked me into going hiking <laughs> up and put, down mountains by, put, by putting the disc in your hand. Let's, let's go play. <laughs> yeah. well, anyway. I kidded, I kidded Jeff. He said to me, can I, I'll tell him the quick story. Okay. Uh, yeah, Jeff, I said to Jeff, I, I owed him. I said to him, okay, I'm ready to come on now. Cause I had to cancel. Well, I didn't cancel. I couldn't come on last week yeah. the week before I was on the road. So, and he said, yeah, that's great. He said, can you do 9, 9 a.m. ET tomorrow? And I said to myself, Why? since when are he and I talking Eastern time? We're both in Central time. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm with you at 8, 8 a.m. at the same time. And he said, oh, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. And I, I, I haven't actually been in Asheville, but I, I've only heard wonderful things about it. But I wanted to pull, pull his leg and I said, oh, you're with the bourgeoisie in Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> Instead of instead of with working people in either Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, or Green Bay, Wisconsin, so right, right, the the real heart of America, right, right, that's right. Um, Actually, I have a very good friend. I don't know if she would she'll catch this. I'll try to call it to her attention. Um, 
she we used to do radio to, I, she had a radio show daily in oh, Asheville nice. on AM radio and then FM I believe um, I, shit, I can't believe I'm blanking out her name this is embarrassing um, no anyhow she's she's been a restaurateur off and on cafes mm -hmm. restaurants down in Asheville and she went to LSU as an undergraduate so this is so embarrassing. I'm gonna. I'll have to next time I'm on. I'll. I'll apologize. Oh, yeah. Well, well, we'll have to book that one soon, though. Uh, so, Professor Harvey K, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Um, and yeah, pick up his slew of books from your local uh, bookseller. Uh, yeah, the more the merrier. The books will tell you. <laughs> and 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 again, keep an eye out for the uh, one from Zero Books that's coming out. Ooh. Well, British Marxist historians. Yeah. Okay. Good to see you, Jeff. Thank you thank for having me on. Thanks so much, Harvey. Have a great day. All right, and thank you so much to everybody for watching. Uh, this has been Good Morning Comrade. You can support the show by going to Good Morning Comrade, uh, patreon.com slash goodmorningcomrade. You can be like Ty Jitty, Michael H., Dan O., Jonathan H., Timothy C., Dragon Slayer 19, Andy L., Gary W., Kenneth F., Adam R., Trey M., Watermelon Pickle, and Penelope D. Thank you so much uh, for watching, everybody. Love you, bye. All right. Thank you.